Our sermon text for this morning is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 and 38. Who is there who speaks, and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? In addressing the children again this morning, I hope you remember our lesson from last Sunday. If not, I'll tell you a little of it again. Jeremiah was a minister that God had given a special message to. It was actually a very hard message for the church. You remember how we learned that in Jeremiah's days, people had stopped going to church to worship God, and they were just worshiping other things, statues that were fake gods, things from their own imaginations. And Jeremiah's message was that they needed to stop doing this and come back to worshiping God properly, but the people would not listen. And part of Jeremiah's message was that if they didn't stop their fake worship, God was going to make it stop by sending an army to destroy their, their big, their fancy, beautiful church building that they called their temple. Now the verses that we just read are from a book Jeremiah wrote after this happened. And in this book, he tells about the very sad, very scary things that the enemy army did to God's disobedient people. Now, Jeremiah has a nickname. His nickname is the Weeping Prophet. Weep means to cry. And it's because of this book that he got that nickname. Jeremiah wept. That means he cried at how bad things were when the enemy army attacked the church. And he wrote it in this book of Lamentations. But every once in a while, Jeremiah tells us about how great God is and about how much he loves his people. And when we read this book, we need to remember that all the time. You all know your dad and mom love you very much, and I hope you know that God loves you more than they ever could. You know, but a, a parent's love for their children is a very difficult thing, very hard to explain because it has so many parts that children never think about. Do you know that when your parents have to discipline you because you've done something you're not supposed to, they don't like doing it? Did you know that it makes them very sad? It makes them sad because they watch their little children sin against God. And it also makes them sad because they know when they discipline you, you're probably going to cry and they don't want to see you cry. But because they love you, they have to discipline you. Otherwise, you grow up thinking that it's okay to do those things that you're not supposed to do. And dad and mom love you so much that they can't let you grow up thinking that it's okay to do those things. Sometimes, mom and dad make plans that are really good for you in the end. But while you're waiting for the end, some parts of that plan don't feel good and they don't feel fair. But when everything is done, it all makes sense, and you understand it. This is how God treats his church. We are his children, and when we do things that are wrong, he disciplines us so that we understand that what we did was wrong. And sometimes he makes plans that don't feel good or feel unfair. But when everything is done, we find out that God's plan was really the best. So I hope you'll pay attention. Aiden, I'm talking to you. 
I hope you'll pay attention to the sermon and notice that this is what we're going to be talking about. God is powerful and God is wise and God loves his people. And everything he does, even the things that hurt or feel unfair, he actually does because he loves his children and he wants the best for them. Little kids are not the only ones who get disciplined, you know. Grown-ups do too, and grown-ups don't like it any more than children do. But God loves all his children, whether they be small kids like you, or whether they be grown-ups like your parents or your grandparents. And so God teaches us all how to live in a way that helps us show him how much we are thankful to him for all he has done for us. And sometimes the way that he teaches us doesn't feel good. But later on, we find out that it really was a good thing, and we have even more to be thankful to God about because he is helping us to live in the way that makes him happy. Let's bow our heads in prayer. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good. And thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the previous sermon, we looked at that phrase, who is there? And we saw that it tells us that only God can guarantee the future, or the fulfillment, I should say, of what he says, and that we should never be rash to speak in God's name. Now, in this sermon, we're going to look at the next phrase, which is, speak and it come to pass. Now, to speak and it come to pass means to be able to infallibly guarantee the fulfillment of what you say. Think of Genesis 1, where we read, God said, or let there be, which is followed immediately by, and there was. So what does this sovereign speaking and it come to pass entail? First, and this is the way our sermon will go, these three points. Number one, it's to be able to foresee all future events. Secondly, it is to control all related factors. And thirdly, it is to foreordain all events. Now, actually, I've ordered that backwards, but I think it will help for explaining it. So first of all, it is to be able to foresee all events. Now, only God knows all events and from the beginning. Let's expand that idea a little bit. In Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, God says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And if you look back up at the earlier verses of that chapter, you'll see that God is rebuking Judah for their idolatry. And the main way that God distinguishes himself from their idols is that he has perfect knowledge of all events that have ever or will ever happen. And more than that, he knows all events because everything happens according to his counsel. 
And that's virtually the same language as Ephesians 1, where we read that our predestination is, quote, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So you see, it's not simply that God knows what will happen because he has some special power or ability that allows him to look down corridors of time, as heretics like to say. No, to think this is to make God part of his own creation. But God dwells outside the universe, and nothing that he is and nothing that he does is bound by the dimensions of his created universe, whether of space or time. The 6th century Christian theologian and philosopher Boethius defined God's eternity as an eternal present. And I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about it. Because in simple terms, it means that all the events in the history of the world, everything that's ever, ever happened already, whatever's happening now, whatever will happen as long as the world continues, these are eternally before God as present tense events. And maybe that's an easy explanation for the fact that many times we feel like it's already too late for God to answer our prayers. And then he answers them and everything works out as good or better than we had hoped. You know, Zacharias, Zachariah and Elijah, uh, Elijah, Elizabeth, <laughs> I'm sure they had stopped praying for children a long time before. They were already way past childbearing years. And then the angel appears to Zechariah and he says, hey, your prayers have been heard. And you can just imagine him thinking, what, the prayers we stopped praying 35 years ago? And lo and behold, Elizabeth has John the Baptist, a little baby. At any rate, we just need to understand that God is not bound by time, and therefore he never reacts. See, reacting is what we do when we don't know what's going to happen, we are caught off guard, and so we have to think on our feet and roll with the punches. To say that God reacts, <coughs> excuse me, would be to say that something happened that he didn't anticipate. And if this were true, it would mean that God learned something that he previously didn't know. But a God who learns is not the God of the Bible. A God who learns does not possess perfect knowledge. And I doubt there's anyone so bold as to say that God does not possess perfect knowledge. Now you notice when we speak of the prophets, we never say that they predict the future. We always say that they foretell the future. And this is because God reveals through their messages what, what will happen or what he intends to do. Only someone with perfect and infallible knowledge of the future can do this. But we have to understand that this isn't just simple knowledge of things that are just going to happen. Rather, this is knowledge of what he has decreed to bring to pass. One of St. Augustine's opponents slanderously claimed that the biblical doctrine of predestination, as Augustine taught it, was just the, the old-fashioned pagan doctrine of fate. Now, fate is the notion that there is a predetermined destiny for all things that just is, and even the gods can't get around it. But this falls short of the Bible's teaching. There is a predetermined destiny for all things, but it isn't some undirected and impersonal set of events that no one, even God, can get around. The biblical doctrine is much, much higher than the pagan doctrine of fate. The Bible teaches that the predetermined destiny of all things is precisely that, predetermined. 
and predetermined means that there is a mind involved, a mind who has planned it all out and designed it to fit together a very specific way. Our second point is that this type of sovereignty entails control over all related factors. Now, control of all factors is a natural part of creating. Even on the simplest level, if you write a piece of music, you decide all the related factors. Time signature, tempo, key, and so forth. Think of any pivotal event in, in history. You history buffs, and I know there are a lot of you here at Frieden's, You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The more you study an event, the more you find that there were many times when some seemingly insignificant event could have changed the entire course of world history. But let's take an example from the Bible, and let's take the most obvious one, the birth of Christ. All throughout history, from the Garden of Eden until Jesus was actually born, we find countless events that could have rendered his birth impossible. What if the angel of the Lord hadn't stopped Abraham in time when he was about to sacrifice Isaac? Well, the nation of Israel would never have been formed from which Jesus came. Had Ruth not just so happened to have gathered wheat out of Boaz's field, they would never have married, and Obed wouldn't have been born. No Obed, no Jesse, no Jesse, no David, no David, no Jesus. Speaking of David, think of David and Goliath. Had Goliath killed David like any reasonable person would have expected, Jesus would never have been born. After the kingdom of Israel divided, there were many times when the kings of Judah were in grave danger and had any of them died before having a son, Jesus wouldn't have been born because the line of David would have been cut off. Uh, for instance, when King Ahaziah died, his mother, Queen Athaliah, killed the rest of the royal family in order to make herself queen. Now, little did she know that the high priest's wife, who was related to the royal family, smuggled one of Ahaziah's children, a little baby named Jehoash, smuggled him out of the palace and hid him in the temple. Jehoiada, the high priest, after waiting a few years, when little Jehoash was seven years old, officially crowned him as king of Judah. Now, had you lived during that time period, you wouldn't have been able to conceive how it was even remotely possible that God's promise to David could have come true. And then when Jesus was born, Herod ordered all the babies in Bethlehem to be slaughtered. And Jesus slipped through his fingers because God warned Joseph in a dream to take the child and the mother and hide in Egypt. And Matthew makes sure that we understand that this was no random occurrence, but rather a specific fulfillment of a specific prophecy. Hosea had proclaimed the words, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And Matthew is so intent that we see this as a fulfillment of the prophecy, that he's quoting Hosea's words, Out of Egypt have I called my son, even before he tells us that Jesus went into Egypt. Now the point I'm making is this. Simple knowledge of the future is inferior to control over it, and that's what Scripture declares God has. That's one of the key points of our text. God can speak and guarantee that what He says will come to pass because the Lord commands it. And the Hebrew word is literally the same word as decree. He knows all of future events, and He sovereignly controls all the details, and I don't mean to say that God controls only those things 
which are related to what the Bible foretells, I mean to say that God is sovereign over everything, period. Suggest that even one molecule in the universe is not under God's direct control and you've denied the biblical doctrines of providence and sovereignty and you've rendered prophecy of any kind impossible. Because how can God infallibly foretell the future if there are things, even stray molecules here or there, that are not under his direct, immediate control? One of the most beautiful expressions of this providential rule of God over all things that I have ever read comes from a sermon by Ezekiel Hopkins, and I want to read a portion of it for you. He says, A sparrow, whose price is but mean, two of them valued at a farthing, and whose life, therefore, is but contemptible, and whose flight seems giddy and at random, yet it falls not to the ground, neither lights anywhere without your father. His all-wise providence hath before appointed what bow it shall pitch on, what grains it shall pick up, where it shall lodge, where it shall build, on what it shall live, and when it shall die. Hence we learn that God governs the meanest, most inconsiderable and contemptible occurrences in the world by an exact and particular providence. Not a dust flies in a beaten road, but God raiseth it, conducts its uncertain motion, and by his particular care conveys it to the certain place he had before appointed to it. Nothing comes to pass, but God hath his ends in it, and will certainly make his own ends out of it. Though the world seem to run at random, and affairs to be huddled together in blind confusion and rude disorder, yet God sees and knows the sequence of all causes and events, and so governs them that he makes a perfect harmony out of all those seeming jarrings and discords. It is most necessary that we should have our hearts established in the firm and unwavering belief of this truth, that whatever comes to pass, be it good or evil, we may look up to the hand and disposer of all, to God. Now, it should go without saying that because God created all, He knows all. It should also go without saying that since God created all things and because He is wise, He had a definite plan and purpose for all things that He created. Well, it should go without saying, but... In virtually every age, it does not go without saying because men are perpetually bent on trying to be wiser than God. Now, I'll trust you remember that last week we learned that God executes his decrees by creation and providence. And I recommend that you read and reread Heidelberg Catechism questions 26 and 27 that deal with creation and providence. But again, let's define our terms briefly. Creation is God's making all, thing of, all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And Heidelberg Catechism, question 27, defines providence as the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, Meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now, throughout church history, there has been constant attempts to put asunder these two things which God hath joined together. And they usually fall into one of two directions. Either they minimize 
God's direct sovereignty over men and their lives and actions in order to bolster the pretended notion of man's self-determining will. <coughs> or they put all God's acts as judge way off into some future day of judgment. Thus they live as virtual deists. People who claim to believe in God as creator, but they view him as a creator who just wound up the clock of the universe and now stays hands off. They think that he, you know, they may believe that he's creator and judge, but they cannot picture any kind of judgment being meted out by God against men and nations in this lifetime. But the Bible's witness is far, far different. It tells us, first of all, that God, as sovereign creator, is not accountable to anyone for his disposing of his creatures. And this is as true with the dispensing of temporal gifts as it is of eternal gifts. Now, it should be obvious that God disposes of temporal gifts merely according to the good pleasure of his own will. Some men are born blind. Others have sight. Some are born into wealth, others into poverty. Some are born genius. Others of us are born a little slower. Some people are born with a sense of hearing. Some are born deaf. And the scripture declares all this, but further insists that God dispenses with the eternal blessing of salvation in the same way, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will. And he does not have to give an account to anyone for how he does it. He says, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, and on whom I will, I will harden. And when people bristle at the notion that they are not the kings of their own destinies, Scripture anticipates their objections. So Paul in Romans 9 deals with the man who thinks that he must control his own destiny and that God isn't being fair if he elects whom he will to salvation. And this man objects. Well, then why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? In other words, if God has sovereignly ordained all things, then he has ordained that I would live and die in sin. And if this is true, then why is he judging me as a sinner when all I've done is what he has sovereignly ordained? Now, let's say a few things real quick. First, if God's sovereignty over man's salvation and damnation was not what Paul had in mind in Romans 9, that objection would never have come up. And secondly, notice that Paul doesn't get flustered and back down and say that he was misunderstood. On the contrary, he doubles down and insists that this has nothing to do with fairness or justice, but it is a matter of pure divine sovereignty. His, reject, his, his response to the objection is not, oh, you've misunderstood me, let me add some nuance, but rather, but indeed, oh man, who are you? to respond against God. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me this way? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Now, our objector may be inclined to say, okay, fair enough, if you're talking about a lump of clay, but men are certainly more than mere lumps of clay. But that objection still grossly underestimates the force of Paul's answer. Because let's grant it that man is more than a mere lump of clay, but even that, he is only finitely more. Like the lump of clay, here is, he is a mere creature of God, and therefore finite, whereas God is infinite. You may be more than clay, but only finitely so. God is infinitely more than any potter. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar returns to his senses after being judged to live like an animal, and he says, 
At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Note that the hallmark of sanity is acknowledging and bowing to God's sovereignty. Now our third point is that God has ordained or decreed all events. Now when I first laid out the three points of the sermon, you'll remember that I said that I had ordered them backwards. Now by now I hope you understand what I meant by that because we've repeatedly crossed the line into this point several times already. God's foreknowledge is based on his decree. He knows because he ordained. And here's where the Arminian concept of foreknowledge makes shipwreck of the faith. God does not have to calculate the future based on what he foresees each creature will do. Neither does God have to look down some mythological corridors of time to see whether this thing or that thing will happen so that he can react appropriately. Rather, he foresees what each creature will do precisely because he has ordained these things. And our task is never to try to decipher what God's secret plan behind all the events that take place in the world may be. We need merely concern ourselves with obeying what he has revealed as his will. Deuteronomy 29.29 says... The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do the words of this law. Simply put, whatever God has chosen to reveal, he has not done so merely to satisfy our morbid curiosity. On the contrary, every doctrine of Scripture has some reference to how we are to live in humble gratitude to God. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't study the mysteries of Scripture. We should. We should probe as far as we possibly can. But we stop where God's revelation stops. And when we ask questions, they should never be questions of mere speculation. They should always be with the view of understanding God's glory as being better in order to worship Him more knowledgeably. There is nothing honoring to God about mental wool gathering, nor is it honoring to God to probe into his private reasons for what he does. It should suffice us to know that God does all things for his own glory and that the judge of all the earth shall do right. Now, the reason I'm saying all this is that we're on the verge of opening two questions, which many people believe are difficult, and I'm referring to the question of how God's sovereignty relates to men's actions And that is the actions that are good and the actions that are evil. And we're going to reserve those for two separate sermons in order to do the subject justice. Honestly, I don't think the questions are all that difficult. It's just that fallen man doesn't like the answer. What we've labored to express, though, this morning is that Scripture teaches that that, that God works all things according to the pleasure of his will. Now, in technical terms, that's to say that God is the primary agent. And his primary agency does not nullify secondary causes. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, puts it this way. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, 
freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So let me restate that. God's primary agency as first cause and creator does not nullify secondary causes. In fact, it establishes them. God works through means. So when we say that God ordains a particular event to occur, we're not saying that the means by which this was accomplished don't count. If God uses a kind gift from a friend to meet your need, it doesn't mean that you thank God and that you don't thank your friend as if his kindness was imaginary or less than real because God willed it. God grants the gift of faith to whomever he wills to be saved. And that gift of faith attaches itself to Christ as he is proclaimed by the preaching of the gospel. But for them to hear the gospel, someone has to preach it. For someone to preach it, that someone has to have studied it and have been ordained and commissioned to preach it. God works through means. When we pray for our daily bread, God answers that not by sending ravens with meat and bread to us, but by leading us to our vocations, whereby we earn paychecks that buy the groceries that put the food on our table. God works through means. Okay, so why are we up to our eyeballs in such a deep subject? Well, for one, it glorifies God when his perfections and attributes are studied by his people. We get to learn just how great he really is. Secondly, as we said earlier, we probe as far as we possibly can into the revelations of God's word because we love God, not merely with all our hearts, but also with all our minds. And thirdly, we get a dose of reality about how small we really are when we study the infinite power, wisdom, and sovereignty of God. Why do we ask for all those things in the Lord's Prayer? Because His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And let me just add, stick it out with me over the next few sermons, and we're going to see how comforting these doctrines really are for God's people. Let's pray. O God, whose never-ending and never-failing providence ordereth all things, both in heaven and earth, we humbly beseech thee to put away from us all hurtful things, and to give us those things which be profitable for us. Lord of all power and might, who are the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of thy name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness. And of thy great mercy, keep us in the same. Through Jesus Christ our Lord.